Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you joining us. I want to say hello to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for participating with us there. Uh, And our parent viewing rooms. If you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service, that's the best option. Uh, And hello to those of you joining us in our cafe as well. Thanks for participating from that venue. And we are in week seven of a series called Famous Last Words, where we've been looking at the things that Jesus said to his disciples during what has, uh, for us, become known as the Last Supper. And it's creatively kind of been called that because it was the last time he had supper with his disciples before he was arrested. And, uh, and so as we've been walking kind of through these things that Jesus said, I want to just remind us, as Amanda did, that not only is uh, next week Easter and, and encourage you to invite somebody to join you, but if this is your church home, would you consider finding a service to serve at? Even if you're not currently on a serving team, uh, we just want to make sure that when we invite all of the friends and uh, family members and coworkers and neighbors that show up next week, that they have an amazing experience, especially with uh, kids and students. And it takes so many hands to just pull that off. And so uh, if you'd be willing to say, hey, I would serve at one and then I'll attend another one. And, and, and uh, you know, if you're inviting friends, we'll, we'll come to a different one, but we'll serve at one. That would help us to make sure. And it doesn't permanently sign you up for a team or anything like that, but just to say, you know what? On Easter weekend, I want to pitch in. And if that's you, you can just write Easter uh, serve, Easter serve on the back of your connection card, drop it into one of the giving stations and we'll make sure and get in touch with you this week and help you get connected on a team. And uh, we just, again, want to make sure that as we invite people, that they have an incredible experience here with us. And so um, we'd love for you to do that. Now, uh, we're wrapping up what Jesus taught his disciples today during this time, uh, his last sort of night with them, the night that he was arrested. And we've been walking through this for the last uh, six weeks, last seven weeks. And if you missed any of the previous weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and check those out online. But today, before we jump into this last thing that Jesus says to his disciples, this really a prayer that Jesus prays, I want to go back a little bit further into Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry and at a specific point in time when he's hanging out with his disciples and they have this interaction, this conversation as he's in the midst of his teaching and in the midst of, you know, uh, going around and he's traveling and he's teaching large crowds of people. And at a point when he's with his disciples, just Jesus and his disciples, they have this conversation that's recorded for us by Matthew. And here's what we discover. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is a reference to himself. So Jesus is going, hey, we've been traveling around and we're teaching and we've got all these crowds gathered together. And what's the word on the street, right? What's the rumor mill? What's the scuttlebutt? What, What do people say? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So Jesus, this is kind of like the rumor mill. This is the word on the street is that they think that you are, uh, they think that you're John the Baptist. They think that you're Elijah. They think that you're Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets that's come back. And so Jesus, you know, we don't know how long the pause is. You know, you kind of read into this and you go, well, all right. Jesus asked a follow-up question. Then he asked them, well, who do you say that I am? Okay, that's the word on the street, but what about you guys? What about you that have been with me and traveled with me and seen me? And Simon Peter speaks up, and Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that word Messiah means the promised one. You're the one that, that has been promised to us. There's a prophecy that one would come, and it would be the way back to God, the one that would redeem and the one that would restore and renew. And so Simon looks at Jesus and he says, This is who I think you are. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, 
because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now that's an amazing statement that Jesus makes. But there's some words that are a part of that that have some very specific uh, linguistic and cultural meanings. So this word Messiah is the one that's been promised that would come back and be the way for the nation of Israel back to God. It would be the promised one that would come. And then these words, uh, church and the word hell. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and not not even hell, all the powers of hell won't be able to conquer it. And the word church, where we get the word English word for church, comes from a German word, which means holy building or sacred structure. And what we know is that uh, the church of Jesus isn't a building. It's actually something so much deeper than that and so much more transcendent than that because the actual word that Jesus used is, uh, it eventually became translated into this German word, Kirch, which we then translated to English and it means church and it means this building. But the truth is the word that Jesus used was a word that meant a, a, an assembly or a gathering of people, a group of people. And, and the word for hell, uh, probably different than the way we kind of think of it in modern terms, uh, really the word was the word Hades. It was uh, Greek for the God of the underworld or the God of the dead or the place of death. And so really, here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, upon this statement, upon this idea that I am the Messiah, that I am the, God's revealed this to you, that I am the one who has come that's going to be the way back to God. And around that idea and around that revelation, I'm going to build a movement of people and death itself won't be able to stop it. In other words, Jesus is saying generations are going to come and generations are going to go. And uh, entire groups of people are going to be, uh, live their lives and they're going to live to a, an old age and they're going to pass away and the next generation is going to rise up beneath them. And the idea that I am the way back to God is going to continue to move forward. And it's going to move forward generation after generation. And I'm going to build a movement of people around this idea that I am the way to God. And death itself won't be able to stop it. That's an incredibly powerful statement. And Jesus says this movement's just going to grow stronger and stronger and stronger, and the physical reality of death is not going to be enough to stop this group of people built around the belief that Jesus is the way to God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the way back to God. And if you're ever wondering what the church is supposed to be about, that's it. That's what the church is supposed to be about. That's why our mission statement is so simple, because even though we kind of put language to it, we really didn't come up with the idea. It was the mission that God gave every church, that we are people helping people find and follow Jesus. That's really why Jesus came, that we're a group of people built around the idea that we're helping other people find Jesus, discover who he is, and follow him. And so... That brings us full circle back to this. This is why Jesus came to earth. This is why we exist as a, as a church. This is why the church universal continues to move forward. And so here we find Jesus. At this last supper, they've, they've finished supper. Uh, they've, Jesus has been teaching them. He's, he's, he's taken off his outer robe and he's washed their feet as an example. And he, he's talked to them and given them this command, as I have loved you, you are to love others. And he's told them about the Holy Spirit. And they, they've left the upper room. They're walking towards the garden. And he starts to tell them, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he, he tells them, you're going to go through a lot of difficult things. And in this world, you're going to experience all kinds of trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. 
When we get to chapter 17, which, you know, for us, this is all just Jesus and his disciples hanging out. We, we have the benefit of being able to mark it with chapter and verse. And Jesus knew there are so many things that would, uh, going on in our world that would interrupt and that would distract and, and be tempted to allow division to come into who we are as a church and the movement of the church, the tear at the fabric of what the church is all about. And so as they're walking, Jesus actually stops to pray. And the prayer that Jesus prays is absolutely captivating. It's something that actually has been in the writings of John and as a part of our scriptures for our entire lives. And yet it's a prayer that oftentimes gets overlooked. It's a prayer that we don't look at or maybe even read all that often, but I think it is probably one of the most powerful and insightful prayers that Jesus prays. And so here's what Jesus says. He's in John chapter 17, we find this. Father, the hour has come. So Jesus is saying, okay, all, all of these things that I know are about to take place, there's, a, there's a, a group of events that's about to be set in motion. And the time has come, the hour has come. So glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, God, light me up in such a way that, that I can light others up. Like, let my life be a reflection of you. Light me up in such a way that people recognize who I am. So that I can light you up in such a way that people know that we're connected. And the hour has come and three and a half years of walking with his disciples and teaching them and, and telling them what's going to happen and spending his last few hours walking with them and instructing them. And, and he prays, okay, guys, we're at that hour. Now, before I'm arrested and before all this stuff starts to happen and before all these events kick off, uh, there's something I've got to pray. There's something I've got to ask of my heavenly father. And we pick up this prayer in verse 11. Jesus says this, now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. So Jesus is praying, saying, heavenly father, I'm coming to you. These events are about to unfold. Holy father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that there's a specific reason Jesus prays something. He's praying something very, very specific. And what's fascinating about this, the thing that Jesus prays is when you read this next thing that he's going to pray for, uh, it's been there the whole time. It's kind of like uh, the ruby red slippers in The Wizard of Oz. If you've never seen The Wizard of Oz, you're like, well, spoiler alert. You're like, no, I was going to go to Blockbuster later and rent that. Uh, in The Wizard of Oz, she's wearing the ruby red slippers. And at the end of the movie, she's wearing them the whole movie. But at the end of the movie, they're like, oh, you want to get back to Kansas? You just have to click those together and say, you know, there's no place like home. And you're like, well, that movie should have been 10 minutes. Like, she's been wearing those the whole time. And, and it's fascinating because this thing that Jesus prays for, it's been here the whole time. It's been in these verses the whole time, and we just miss it so much. And Jesus starts to pray, and he prays for, protect them by the power of your name, and he prays for their protection, but not their physical protection. Because remember, Jesus has already told them, you're going to experience hardship. You're going to experience trials and sorrow. He's already told his disciples, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be put on trial. Many of you are going to be killed for believing in me and for professing my name. And so it's not God protect them, pray for their physical protection. He prays for a different type of protection. He says, protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. The protection that Jesus is praying for is not a physical protection, but it is a protection of their unity, that they would be one. Jesus is praying more than anything else, 
more than anything else. I want them to be one. I want them to be united because Jesus knew as long as they were in lockstep with each other and as long as they were in lockstep with his heavenly father, that the world would change. But that if they ever lost that unity, if they ever became splintered, if this movement that Jesus started, it's so dependent on people rallying together and keeping the main thing the main thing and keeping the message of Jesus front and center, that if they ever got splintered and everybody started doing their own thing, that this movement would stall out. And this movement would come to a, come to a halt. And then we keep reading down to verse 20, and Jesus actually prays for you and me. Jesus actually looks into future generations and he says a prayer for you and he prays something for me. And do you know what Jesus prays for you and me? Not what we pray for ourselves. Listen to what Jesus says. I am praying not only for these disciples, we're talking about the ones that were with him, not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I'm praying for all of the disciples in the future, all of the people in future generations that will ever put their faith in me because of the message of these disciples, which is why you and I are here today. The reason that we even have a faith in Jesus is because of the stories and the messages that were passed down to us from these eyewitness accounts. They, they, they had eyewitness experience and testimony and they wrote about it and they said, here's what happened. We saw Jesus die and then we saw him alive again and hundreds and hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And it started a movement that Jesus said he would start. A movement of people gathered around the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one true way back to God. And we're here today because of these disciples and because of their eyewitness accounts and because of their story. And so Jesus looks into the future and he says, God, I'm praying for everyone who believes, everyone who puts their trust in me because of these disciples. I pray for them. And here's what he prays for. He says, I pray that they will all, every one of them, all of these future believers, all of these people in future generations, that means everyone, all of them in the first century, Jew and Gentile, uh, rich and poor, slaves and freedmen and military leaders and soldiers and tax collectors and those who were uh, having taxes taken from them and educated and uneducated. And he looks into the future and he says, and I pray for all of those people that would ever put their trust in me because of these disciples. So for us, that means Republicans and Democrats. It means libertarians. It means uh, the privileged and the not so privileged. It means the independent and the indecisive and black and brown and white and beige and married and single and divorced. All of us, all of the people, Jesus says, all, all who call me Lord, all who put their faith in me, no matter what they've experienced, no matter what life has thrown at them, no matter how life has treated them, I pray for all of these future disciples who have put their trust in me because somewhere along the way they heard the stories of these disciples and they heard their eyewitness accounts. And here's what I pray for them, that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. And as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. That's what Jesus prays for. Uh, as I am in you and you are me. And then he says, and I pray, may they be in us specifically so that the world will believe you sent me. Uh, I pray that they would be one and I pray that they would be in us as, I, as, as you're in me and I'm in the disciples here. I pray that they would all be one, all the future generations of people who have put their trust in me because of the stories of these eyewitnesses. I pray, God, that they would all be united so that 
the world will believe. So that when, the, when the world looks at this movement, when the world looks at this church, when the world looks at this group of people, that they would look at how united this group of people is and they would be convinced that I am the way back to God. That's amazing. What an incredibly powerful prayer. It's fascinating. Father, as long as there is unity, as long as there's unity with me and I have unity with you, their message is going to impact generation after generation after generation. So protect their unity because the only thing that will stop this movement from moving forward is if there's no longer unity, if they allow themselves to become divided. And so you can see why Jesus prays this prayer. You can see why it's so close to his heart. He thought about the mission of the church. He thought about this movement that it was started that not even death would be able to stop it. And his prayer is simply that we would be united. And because here's what Jesus knew, and I think deep down in our hearts, we know this too. Unity isn't an add-on. It's mission critical. Unity isn't just a, a nice idea. It's at the heartbeat. It's at the center of everything that Jesus came to do. It's not just, oh, wouldn't it be great if we all got along? It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's absolutely mission critical because anybody, anybody can get along with and love well people that they agree with. Jesus actually said that at one point. He said, look, if you love the people who love you, everybody does that. That's simple. That's easy. He said, you want to know how you're behaving as true children of your Father in heaven is when you love your enemies, when you pray for people who persecute you, when you pray for people who, are, who treat you harshly. That's when you know that you're truly like your Father in heaven. It's a totally, totally different standard. This is absolutely mission critical. Our union, our connection, our harmony, our unity has never been based in agreement in all things. Because if our unity within the body of Christ is rooted in agreement in all things, then we have a very fragile friendship. And the second we disagree on something, unity and community and harmony is broken. Our unity is based in something so much bigger than our agreement in all things. And Jesus knew we would be tempted to disagree on smaller things and we would be tempted to allow those smaller disagreements to undermine our overall unity and stall our mission. And Jesus knew this. My church is going to be so universal. I'm going to build a movement of people around this idea and it's going to capture and encapsulate all kinds of different people. It's going to be so diverse, different cultures and different colors and different languages and different people groups. And so he knew this had to be the prayer. May they be one. So that, not just for the sake of, hey, you know, we want to feel good and get along. So that, not because of simply what God wanted to do in us, but because of what God wants to do through us. So that the world will believe that you sent me. That when a watching world looks at this group of people and they go, man, I look at that group of people and you've got people from all different backgrounds. You've got people from all different types of cultures and different experiences and they live in different parts of the community and they have uh, different life experiences growing up and uh, different stages of life and yet they don't even agree on everything. But man, look at how they love each other. That a watching world would look at that kind of unity and they'd go, there's something about that. And Jesus said, when that is the, the, at the front of everything, it's so mission critical that, God, I'm praying that you'd make them one, that they'd be so united that the world would believe that you sent me. Who does that? 
See, that is what would eventually get the attention of the pagan world. That's what eventually would get the attention of the Roman Empire. And we must not sacrifice our unity for anything. Remember, Jesus' final command to his disciples. I mean, we talked about this in week two. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. Love others as I have loved you. And Jesus said the same way, to the same degree, the same self-sacrificial, self-emptying, self-giving type of love, the way that I have loved you, you are to love other people. And the world is going to take notice. Jesus said they're going to know you're my disciples when you love each other that way. So after he tells his disciples this, and they've had this discussion, he prays this prayer, God, please help them to get it right. Help them, help them to get this right. This is going to be the one thing that moves your kingdom forward. Please, God, don't let them give up unity because they disagree over anything else. Please help them to love unconditionally as I have loved them so that the world will be convinced of your love. And then he continues. The next verse, he prays this. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me and may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity. Jesus doesn't pray for, I hope that they all see everything the exact same way and behave like robots. He doesn't pray that they are just robotic, locked in, and they see everything the same way, and they believe all the exact same things, and they have the exact same worldview, and they look through the exact same lens. Jesus knows that's not going to be the case. He prays for unity, that they would see each other. Jesus prays, God, let them see each other the way that I see them. And may they see me the way that I am to be seen. And God, may, may they understand that unity is mission critical. And God, you know and I know this movement, it all hinges on their unity, not their politics, not their culture, not their language or their worldview, not baptism, not communion, not what day of the week they worship on, not whether they're in person or online. It all hinges on their unity. That was what Jesus wanted most for his disciples, and it's what he wanted most for the generations of disciples that would come in the future. Which means we can disagree and still love unconditionally. We can disagree with each other and still love unconditionally. In fact, to love unconditionally means there isn't a condition. Agreement isn't a condition for me to love you and for you to love me. And there are always going to be things in every culture and in every generation that threaten to divide us. What makes the message of Jesus so compelling and so powerful is not that we agree in all things but that even when we disagree, and especially when we disagree, that we love unconditionally. That we can look at each other and say, I don't see things the way that you see things. My experience brings me to a different place, but I love you, and we can agree to disagree. And you can be my brother, and you can be my sister, and we may not see eye to eye, but I will love you unconditionally. And whenever something Jesus says specifically intersects with something that's going on in our culture, it would be wise for us to pay attention to what Jesus says. Specifically, when something Jesus teaches and models starts to interact and intersect with something going on in our culture, it's so important for us to look at what Jesus says. And there is a huge divide in our nation, the likes of which I have never experienced in my lifetime, and probably you either. And... Uh, Make no mistake about it, it's hurting the church. 
It's seeping into the church. It's hurting our influence. It's hurting our witness and hurting our ability to love well the world that Jesus has called us to love and to love well one another the way that Jesus has loved us. And so much of this division in our current culture centers around political ideologies. It centers around worldview and the lens through which we see life and and, in the world that we live in. And nothing divides people like politics because nothing divides people like fear. And politics is great at peddling fear because you can raise a lot of money peddling fear. You can't raise as much money when you're not peddling fear. And that looks like this. The Republicans are going to take away your opportunity to vote. And the Democrats are going to take away your guns. But for $25, we can solve that. And I can't tell you how many emails I get from political candidates on every side of every ideology that say, listen, the deadline is midnight tonight. And we are so close. And if you'll just give us $25, but it's got to be before midnight, we can solve all of your problems. I'm like, oh, that sounds fantastic. What a great deal. Because peddling fear can raise a lot of money. If a Republican becomes president, it's the end of the world. And if a Democrat becomes president, it's the end of the world. And here's the question. What exactly are we afraid of? What exactly do we fear? And the answer is loss. Loss of some kind, fear of the unknown. Something's going to be taken away. Loss of control, loss of opportunity, loss of future for our children, loss of the culture that we've come to know and love, loss of our freedom, loss of progress. There's fear in all of us. Now, please hear me. I'm about as apolitical as they come, and we're never as a church going to get involved in politics. But this is not a message about, you know, bury your head in the sand and never, ever read anything political. It's not saying that at all. Ignore the realities of our current situation. What I am saying and what I am suggesting is that if we allow ourselves to become victims of fear and we try to find the solution in something temporary like politics, what happens is not only do we become fearful, but even more importantly, we actually become divided, which is the one thing Jesus prayed for us not to become. It only hurts the movement that Jesus started. And yet, if you think about this, I could go out into our parking lot right now and I promise you I could find some bumper stickers on cars that are Republican-leaning and I can find some bumper stickers on cars that are Democrat-leaning. And I love that. And if you're looking for a church where everybody thinks the same way, this ain't it. Okay, I'm just telling you. you keep, keep looking. And, and, and I'm just telling you, I hope you never atter- attend a church like that. And here's why. Our disagreement or even just seeing things differently, our different ideologies actually has the potential for us as a, as a body of Christ, as a local faith community, to express the love of Jesus to our community in an incredibly compelling way. It gives us the opportunity to say, I don't see things the way that you see things, but you're my brother. I don't see things the way that you see things, but you're my sister. And we can agree to disagree and we can follow Jesus together and we can show a watching world what it looks like to love unconditionally even when we don't agree. There's something so powerful about that. And and I can tell you, based on the current climate in our country, I'm becoming increasingly concerned that we are allowing ourselves to become divided. And that, that in that process, we are diminishing our witness. We're diminishing our influence in our community. So this isn't a talk about, you know, don't get involved in politics. We live in a world where politics is part of our culture. Get involved. Vote your conscience. If you feel called to a career in politics, then go for it. Dive in. But here's what you need to know. Whatever your political ideology and stance, your candidate will win 
or lose based on how a single vote goes on a single day. The church of Jesus will win or lose based on how we treat each other every single moment. It's so much deeper. That's why we must not let anyone or anything divide us, particularly systems or ideologies that are temporary. See, we follow an eternal king. So why would we allow ourselves to be divided over anything temporary? We're a part of a movement that Jesus said not even death would be able to stop it, that generation after generation would come and go, and this movement based on the idea that Jesus is the way to God would just get stronger and stronger and stronger the more that time goes on. And so why would we ever, ever sacrifice that for something temporary? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by temporary systems and temporary ideologies and temporary kingdoms? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided over fear when the number one command of Jesus was, fear not. Don't be afraid. A king has come. Fear not. And the context into which Jesus spoke those words was the temple on the one side who wanted to arrest him and the empire on the other that carried out his execution. And in the midst of those incredibly powerful Sides of things, Jesus actually says, don't be afraid, a king has come. And here's the thing. The thing that you disagree with on somebody else, the the view that you have, it changes over time. When I was 20 years old, I knew everything. There were things that I drew a line in the sand on at 20 years old. I'm like, this is it. This will never change. And here I am just a couple years later, and... Stuff has shifted. And I'm like, oh, I don't even think like that anymore. I don't even believe that anymore. And so don't ever allow a potentially flawed and potentially changing view to alienate you from somebody created in God's image. The you next to you is more important than your point of view. They are created in God's image. Why would we not fight for and sacrifice for and work for the unity that our Savior prayed for. I can say this with 100% confidence. This is God's will for you because this is what Jesus prayed for, that we would be united. Not that we would agree in everything, not that we would have uniformity, not that we would never disagree on things, but that in our disagreements, that when we disagree, and especially when we disagree, that we would love well. So how do we do that? Here's three simple things, I think, to help us during this culture that we find ourselves in. Number one, listen. Listen. Maybe close our mouths and open our ears. Close our mouths, open our minds. Make it a point not just to try to get my point across, but try to see where somebody else is coming from. Listen to people who don't experience the world the way that you do. Look for an opportunity to hear their story. I love this quote from blogger Laura Finucci. She wrote this a couple of years ago. We're slinging statements, sharp-edged like swords, hurling statistics and theories back and forth, barbs from our battlements, arguing over opinions, ready to wound for the sake of right, but we aren't sharing our stories. We're not sharing our stories. And it's so difficult to dehumanize someone when I've heard their story. 
I can start to understand where they're coming from. Rufus Miles uh, was a guy who was born in 1910. He worked for three U.S. presidents, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. And during his time in politics, he wrote what came to be known as Miles Law. And Miles Law just says this, where you stand depends on where you sit. In other words, where you stand on any particular issue depends on so many different factors. It depends on where you sit. It depends on where you find yourself. It depends on where you're coming from. Our, cult, our cultural context determines our perspective. And so what you see and how you see it and how you interpret it, they're shaped by all kinds of different things that you didn't even choose. Oftentimes your worldview, it, it wasn't shaped in a vacuum. And pausing to stop and consider somebody else's point of view and what caused their point of view, that's just called maturity. And don't we need some more maturity in our nation right now? And our views have been shaped by all kinds of things. Where we live, where we grew up, how we were raised, how we were educated, the things that we've been told, the things that we've seen, the things that we've experienced, the things that we've seen other people experience. All of these things start to shape a worldview for us. And if we can listen and acknowledge somebody else's point of view, it doesn't mean you have to change your point of view or agree with someone else, but it does mean you'll understand a little bit better why they see things the way that they see things. And it will help us work towards unity, even when, especially when, we disagree. And when we don't listen to the stories of people who think differently than us, it becomes very easy to dehumanize them. And pretty soon we just go, it's just us versus them. But there is no them, there's only us. Every person that you have ever disagreed with, ever, is someone for whom Christ died. So we've got to listen. Secondly, we have to learn. Don't just listen and dismiss. Listen and learn. And don't be afraid of new information. Be a student and not just a critic. Otherwise, you'll discount everything that doesn't fit into your worldview. Open your mind to the possibility that you might be wrong. See, everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them. Everybody's viewpoint makes perfect sense to them. That's why they have that viewpoint. Everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them. That's why they behave that way. Well, I just don't understand how they could think like that. Then what you've just admitted is that there is something that you don't understand. Well, I just don't understand how they can see the world that way. What you just admitted is that there is something that you don't know. You should seek to understand that because that will help you. And if we don't listen and learn... Uh, the temptation for us is to dehumanize anybody who doesn't see things and think the way that we think. And in the process, this unity that Jesus prayed for gets tossed out the window, and the movement that Jesus started gets stalled out because we're more concerned about agreeing on temporary matters than entering into this eternal movement. So we've got to listen. We've got to learn. And ultimately, we have to love. Listen, learn, love. Never burn a relational bridge over a temporary viewpoint. Never, never burn a relational bridge over something that is temporary. The you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed or potentially changing point of view. Because while you and the person you disagree with were both sinners, Christ died for you. And while me and the person that I don't see eye to eye with, while we were both sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm so grateful that he did. So never burn a relational bridge with someone for whom Christ died. 
And there's no greater sign to the world around us that we're followers of Jesus. There's no greater expression of his love than for us to disagree with each other and still love unconditionally. And just for a moment, let me talk to you. Some of you who are on the other side of that conversation and you're, you've used this language before. You don't love me because you don't agree with me. That's, there's a lot of that in our culture right now. That's not what Jesus prayed for. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not what Jesus modeled. Jesus disagreed with people all the time and still loved them unconditionally. And if our love is equated to agreement and the only way for us to love each other is in agreement in all things, then we have a very fragile definition of love. And I think the love that Jesus modeled when he laid down his life on the cross and said, I'm in the right and you're in the wrong, but I'll take it on me and we disagree, but I'll lay down my life for the sake of you. That's a much stronger and deeper kind of love than you only love me if you agree with me. And we've got to understand and we've got to learn that we can disagree and still love unconditionally. In fact, that's what loving unconditionally actually means. There is no condition of agreement and that we can disagree and still love well. That's what Jesus did for us. Listen, learn, love. Listen, learn, and love. Wasn't that kind of naive? I mean, doesn't that just sound way too simplistic? You can't just be like, listen, learn, love, and like, oh, you know, we're going to have unity. Here's what's naive. A couple thousand years ago, a Jewish rabbi who nobody had ever heard of, who didn't own any home, didn't own any property, didn't have a huge wealth portfolio, uh, hadn't written any books, hadn't traveled outside of his country, had 12 followers, he said this, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a movement of people around the idea that I am the way back to God and not even death itself will ever be able to overcome it. That's pretty naive. And that rabbi was put to death. He was executed as a criminal. And just before his arrest and just before his execution, he prayed this prayer that we would always be one. He prayed that we would experience unity because that is what would get the attention of a watching world. And once upon a time, there were a handful of Jesus' followers and they were crushed between the empire and the temple. And they gave to Caesar what was Caesar's and they gave to God what was God's. And the empire is no more and the temple is no more. And the movement of Jesus continues to move forward. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church, a movement of people gathered around this idea that I am the way back to God and not even death will be able to stop it. And he did build it and he is building it and nothing has stopped it. And you're invited to be a part of it. And I'm invited to be a part of it. And all you have to do is not based on anything that you've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. After Jesus prayed this prayer, just a couple hours later, he would be arrested. The next day, he would be put to death and his body laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, hundreds of people saw him alive again, which means he rose from the dead. And there's more to this life than this life. And you and I have been invited to be a part of it. And it's not because of anything that we've done or haven't done. It's because of who God is. He created you. He loves you. He is the way back to God. And he invites you to join him. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you. Just say yes by agreeing in your heart with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so grateful you never walk away from me. And I thank you that you sent Jesus into this world to overcome death and to be the way back to you. And so I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. 
and help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every single one of us who are followers, doing our best to follow you and trust you each and every moment of each and every day. May we not become divided. I, I, I pray the prayer that Jesus prayed that night. Make us one so that the world will believe. And may our unity, not our uniformity, not agreement in all things, but unity even when we disagree, and especially when we disagree, the way that we love each other, may it show a watching world the love of Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.